0: Is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt
1: Callanan? My name is Matt Callanan. I'm a former international DJ and musician turned filmmaker with We Make Film Happen and founder of the kindness project We Make Good Happen. Coming up on today's episode is Andrea Callanan. She is an international speaker, coach, and author and she's my wife. So I was a little bit worried about how this was gonna go. She delivers so much value that we've actually split this podcast into two parts. She is an incredible transformational coach. And she talks about dealing with fear, the benefits of getting help to negotiate life, imposter syndrome, fear of being visible, what you can do to be successful in 2020. Hello and welcome to We Make Success Happen Today with Amazing Human.
0: Hello, it's Andrea Callanan.
1: And my wife, Andrea (laughs) Callanan. Hello. I normally shake hands, but... You can't shake hands with me. No. Can we do
0: a kiss for the viewers? (laughs) Uh,
1: That's in the uh, bonus features. That's in the bonus features, okay. So this should be quite interesting. I'm quite scared. You should be.
0: Yeah, well, you haven't given me any information about what you're going to talk to me about. (laughs) Uh, I am not in control.
1: Right. Do you want to tell us about your online training? Because that seems to be going really well for you. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm an international coach,
1: speaker and author.
0: And I have leveraged my expertise and my experience. And I guess my zone of genius, which is about taking people from A to B. I specialize in helping people find choice through helping people find their voice. And I concentrate on high achieving females just like me. And I've been doing that online. I got online about two years ago. I've got a bricks and mortar business as well, which you know, called Inspire Me, which is amazing. And I kind of do the same thing with Inspire Me, but we do it in a slightly different way. And we've had that business for about 11 years now. It's going really well. It's a beautiful little business that changes lives in business.
1: How does that happen then for the uh, viewers and listeners?
0: So we're, we're kind of, our moniker is a corporate engagement company, although I'm thinking of changing it to Workplace Happiness Organization. Essentially, what we do is we take creativity and mindset work, psychology, positive psychology, into the workplace. We wake people up and we get them happy and then we get a return on investment for it, both emotionally and financially. And we do it through fairly unorthodox methods. Hmm. We take creativity into into the workplace, which isn't like, I don't know, making stuff with toilet rolls or anything like that.
1: (laughs) That would be quite funny. But that's
0: what a lot of people do, right? They build (laughs) Lego. But we do it through Hey, don't knock the Lego. I won't knock the Lego. I know Lego is a massive, <laughs> massive component of our house. But we use the voice. We use singing. We get people present by getting them physically in their body. So we use singing, drumming, not just any old drummy though, like samba drumming with the most amazing facilitator. And we also use peak performance stuff. So things like walking on broken glass and breaking wooden arrows against your neck and all this type of stuff. And it's basically all to do with almost tricking people into feeling better. And knowing that when they feel better, they do better. And then understanding that if you want to, you can choose to do that and be more on purpose with it. And that's essentially what I do in my coaching business too. I just think it's probably a little bit easier in the coaching business because I look after mainly either senior execs or entrepreneurs. So they're kind of already on purpose in what they do. They just need help in order to be even more fulfilled.
1: What is it about singing then that's so powerful?
0: Oh, see, now, if you talk to me about the voice, we're going to be here for three weeks, aren't we? <laughs> so the reason why singing is so powerful, partly because it's so intrinsic to my story, I guess, which means that, you know, the, the the passion that I can bring to that and what I know it does for people's lives is limitless, really. So singing is one of our major forms of communication since time began. Animals sing, human beings sing to their to their babies when they're born, regardless of what type of voice they've got. It's always been a primary form of communication, just as music is. But I guess the reason why singing might maybe is so special is because it's intimate. So it's your voice. And I've been a voice coach now for 25 years, coming up 26 years. Uh, That means that I've known you for 27 years. Let's not get personal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've been a voice coach for a really long time. And I think for me everything I've done in my whole career has been about the voice partly because I guess my voice was my ticket out of a situation that, and all of this was subconscious, right? I wasn't aware of this, but back then in the day, my way out of my situation of working in a town where I didn't really want to be, where I didn't, you know, I wasn't friends with where I came from. I am now and I'm very proud of where I come from. But back then it was a question of, of, making my mark. And I very much got, I know I've got that spirit within me. And I think the way that I did it originally was through the voice. So I trained as an opera singer. I was very lucky to be noticed at a really young age. And I was given a scholarship to the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. I sang with the Welsh National Opera when I was 14. I cut a record. That was my first record that I cut with them. And then that went on to kind of Nearly a 20 year relationship really with the music industry where it wasn't classical. I mean, the the beginning of my amateur and semi-professional work from the age of about 11 through to about 23, something like that. All of that was pretty much in the classical world. But I discovered dance music and folk music and rock music when I was about 19 and jazz. Jazz was a big opener up for me. So kind of learning how to write and learning how to express myself in a way where I wasn't just singing other people's stuff was really scary for me and therefore it was really exciting. And I started to play around with my, like anybody who knows anything about classical music, anybody who's who's listening or watching, who's ever entertained that discipline of learning a classical instrument will know that there's a right and a wrong way to do something. But when you broaden that, you know, I started to get really excited about the noises that I could make and all of that type of stuff and be really experimental, which makes me sound like I'm really weird, but I'm not. (laughs) Um, but what was good about that was that I, you know, started to discover my voice in more ways than one, because I guess for me, it was a massive part of my identity. It was a huge part of me being seen and being visible, even though I still struggle with that sometimes today, but you know, that was the start of it. It gave me an amazing skill set, And also, I guess when I started coaching, which was actually in the later years of when I was a student, when I started coaching others, I realized how much confidence it gave people and how much self-worth it gave them. And in later years, in the past kind of like eight years or so, I've concentrated heavily on coaching speakers and entrepreneurs to be able to speak about their business and to be able to go on stage and whatnot. And you're a recipient of that and kind of overcoming that fear of judgment and overcoming the fear of failure and understanding that you are just enough exactly as you are. You don't need to have rings and bells and whistles. You don't need to pretend to be somebody that you're not. Authenticity is where it's at and integrity is where it's at. So your voice is unique. And if you are lucky enough or wise enough to invest in working with a voice coach, you can bring out your true authentic voice Then the sky's the limit. It's a good answer, isn't it? I'll get
1: my coat. <laughs> yeah. Finished. We'll wrap up here. Do you want to talk a little bit about the cancer choir that you yeah, set up so, and the difference um, it made? I
0: mean, this was quite a while ago now. This was like, Let's see. We set up Inspire Me. It's before choirs were everywhere. It's before Gareth Malone hit the scene, basically, when he rubber-stamped everything. It's before, before Rock Choir came, came on the scene. But, well, not but, and. So basically, there's been a lot of medical research over the years to prove that singing any type of sound therapy really, but singing in particular, because there's a certain vibration that goes through your body when you sing and you release a lot of endorphins and you also release something called nitric acid. And when you release that stuff into your bloodstream, it's kind of like your, your natural painkillers, I guess. So it's amazing for things because it releases serotonin and dopamine, all of those addictive hormones you get released when you sing. It's a bit like going to the gym, very similar, very similar process that happens physically and so basically there'd been some medical research and there's a couple of, they're called the singing doctors. They're really cool. There's a couple of, there's one German guy, I forget his name. I'll have to research it and uh, we'll have to put it in the, in the footnotes. But there's some guy who's been pioneering singing for wellness for quite a long time, like about 25 years, I would say it's probably his life's work. And there happened to be a lady who now doesn't run 10 of us was the cancer charity. And there was a lady who took over the cancer charity called Claudia and Claudia had been following this guy's research And happened to see us at an event, I think, because we, in Inspire Me, we look after mainly, presently, corporate-based choirs, so workplace choirs. Back then, they were called business choirs because it was before the terminology workplace choirs had been coined. And she'd seen us perform at probably some business event or something. She got in touch with us to talk to us about this idea that she'd had where she wanted to bring singing into the cancer world for people who'd been affected by cancer as a support group very interesting, really pioneering, re- really, really fascinating. Anyway, we were at the start of our business then. We were known as and Inspire then. Singing Inspire still exists as a brand, but I've, I've broadened the brand as the years have gone on. And of course we were yes people. I am a yes person. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. And we started off with a staff choir with theirs. And then we did a trial and these people that are going to get quite emotional. when I talk about this, because the people that we did the trial with are still very dear to us. And dear to my heart, they were at a wedding. They are wonderful people. I'm still in touch with them weekly on Facebook. And so we trialed it with a, a, a small group of people in ponteprith And originally, it was it wasn't even in ponteprith Originally, it was in a tiny, tiny, tiny little town in in the South Wales Valley called Abercynon. And the first night that we turned up, I remember it vividly. I think it was the 12th. Of, it was either 12th of January, the 12th of February, but anyway, it was New Year, and it was snowing, and 12 people turned up. And out of the 12 people that turned up, eight of them i've either had or had just come through cancer and the other people were people who were their spouses or people who cared for them i think the next week we had something like 30 odd and then before we knew it there were about 70 odd people in the choir and we helped ten of us set up their sing with us project so it was now called sing with us but back but we helped pioneer that project and we helped set it up and you know help them put the framework in place and also help them to raise a million pound with lottery funding which then went on to birth this huge project that had come from Claudia's Vision, where I think they had something like 15 or 16 choirs around Wales, and there were a couple of dotted around the world as well. And the medical study that was, that was taken up by Cardiff University, and there has since been a subsequent medical study, but the initial one was groundbreaking globally because it was the first time ever that a medical study had proven that singing in one of our choirs I think it I think that the results were and I've got to get the wording right and I'll be struck down by lightning if I don't because that's what medical research projects are like. But I think it was something like it helped with inclusion. So a lot of people feel um like they can't leave the house. They they get some form of anxiety or agoraphobia, social anxiety. So there was stuff to do with inclusion. There was stuff to do with the perception of pain. So people who sat and all these people were doing were singing regularly for for an hour. That's it. But they were getting out of the house and they were meeting other people, and they they felt like they were a family because they had the sense of belonging. And then to boot, we sang for Her Royal Highness Princess Anne, which was amazing for these for these people. Like they, they were so honoured and so proud to do it. So that pride and that sense of self-worth and the sense they're part of something that's bigger than them and the sense they're doing something amazing for something that's so close to them because cancer is you know, horrible. Everybody hates cancer. We've all been touched by it in some way, shape or form for them to feel like they were doing something to better it. Amazing. And then they, they then went on to do more studies, which actually proved that it was helping them get better. So I, I, it hasn't gone so far as to say that, you know, it, it goes anywhere near curing, of course, but it alleviates a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the pain because of all the, all the endorphins that are going through. It's, it's a phenomenal project to be part of. And I'm incredibly proud that we started. I mean, it seems like an age ago now because it was nearly a decade ago. But my goodness, it was amazing. And the amount of people who are still with us, because we've lost a lot of people, obviously, along the way because of the nature of the disease. But the amount of people that are still with us, when I think of them, it, it, I'm, I feel very warm when I think about them. They're amazing, amazing people. I'm really 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 honored to have met them
1: all and worked with them all. What is it about helping people and transforming people then for you?
0: Well, I think initially, it actually came from quite a negative place, if I'm honest. It came I was I was very codependent when I was younger. I was quite dysfunctional. Didn't really realize it because nobody does, but I kind of the reason I used to help people when I was younger, I guess, is because I had a need to be needed and because it filled something within me which is about my self-worth. These days, and since I've done a huge amount of self-development work, I'm a massive advocate of self-development, and I've been involved in that world for quite some time now. These days, I do it because I can. I choose to do it these days, and I also choose to do it because it gives me so much joy. I did, um, back in 2014, you were part of this, there was the worldwide uh, launch of the Desire Mapping. Danielle Poor did her first global book club, and I was one of the book club leaders, and One of the I remember distinctly a session that we had where we were grappling with all the words of what our core desired feelings are. So I'll just explain. Core desired feelings are when, when instead of thinking about your goals, because I know we're going to possibly talk about this later, instead of thinking about goal setting in the kind of masculine business sense, which is what we tend to do, you actually think about how you want to feel, and then you put a word to that. So if I remember rightly, one of your feelings was something like Shazam or something. I can't. I Shazam and boom. Shazam and boom. And I kind of collected all of my my core desires and I pretty much thought I had them down and there were things like connection and being magnetic and these and abundant and things like this, you know, which are fairly, I guess, fairly generic words for somebody who's in that space. And then I remember um, hosting one of the evenings, one of the book clubs, and I remember being sat on the floor in front of the fire in our living room, surrounded by all of these people who were in the group. There were 14 of us. And I remember... One of the ladies who'd actually been in one of our choirs who had been suicidal when she'd been in one of our choirs and she joined the choir, one of our super choirs, she joined the choir and because she joined the choir, she's now an advocate of mental health. She changed her life around and she wasn't suicidal anymore. She leaned forward to me and said to me that I was one of the most generous people that she'd ever met. And I remember kind of spontaneously combusting really in the room. I couldn't really handle it because she was giving me some praise and I remember realizing that giving was one of my core desires and actually really, really important to me, but important to me for a different reason than it had been previously because by then I had been through some real traumas where I delved into therapy and healing and I had done a huge amount of work on myself to not be in the place where I was a decade previously. I realized that now the reason that I give and the reason that I generally give of my time and expertise. Those are the two main things that that I tend to give. Well, that's not true. Actually, I never go anywhere and town to it. So I'm always giving people gifts, little tiny ones, I guess. It's part of my love language. You could say that. And the reason that I do it is because I feel amazing when I do it and I love doing it now without any, I don't have any attachment anymore to it. I guess that's it. That's the main thing. So I think when you can do it from a really healthy place, where there isn't an attachment to what am I going to get back or will they like me, will they accept me, will they not reject me, it doesn't even have to be accept. it can actually be will they not reject me, you know, all of that stuff. I think that when you're free of all of that, when there is no outcome, when you're not attached to, you know, if I do this, then X will happen, when you just do it because you want to and you do it because it feels amazing and it's lush and you love it, then I think that that's really it's changed my life, most definitely. It's changed how I perceive everything because I've now got freedom in in how I behave and why I do certain things. And freedom's the name of the game, really, isn't it?
1: Everyone wants freedom. Everybody wants
0: they? that's the ultimate <laughs> success, isn't it? Feeling
1: free. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Definitely one of them. So you're doing lots of coaching now. What what are the main things that keeps people from moving forward and holding people back? Fear. Fear is huge. I do a huge amount of work on fear
0: massively fear of judgment, fear of failure, fear of rejection, those three main things, which all really lead to fear of rejection. (laughs) That's, that's what it is. It's all Maslow's, isn't it? It's all Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to belong. And if we fail, we don't belong and we get cast out and eaten by wolves and all the rest of it, you know, it's all that stuff. So there's that fear. Also, there's definitely, so the demographic of people that I work with in the coaching primarily are women who are between kind of mid thirties to mid fifties and they tend to be high achievers. So they tend to be ex corporate and maybe they've had some kind of life change, which sometimes they've chosen. Sometimes they haven't really had a say in where for some reason they're not working in that space anymore, either because they've had children, they need more flexibility and want more flexibility or because they might've had an illness. So they need to change how they work or because they might be made redundant or whatever the reason might be. And what tends to happen is whenever they've had these changes, these pivots, I call them, we call them life pivots, when they've had these life pivots, either in their career or in their personal lives, what happens is their identity changes and sometimes their brain doesn't catch up with the fact that their identity has changed, Mm -hmm. which means they come into a bit of a a crisis around who they are. And whenever you have a crisis around your identity, you lose your sense of self-worth, even if you had a sense of self-worth before. And sometimes people don't. You know, most people don't even think about this stuff. Most people are just getting on with life. And just going through day to day and month to month and thinking about the next holiday or thinking about paying off their bills or whatever they're doing. But actually, there is another way that you can choose to conduct yourself and behave through this life if you want to. And I know it starts, you know, we're starting to get a bit deep and we're a bit big now. But this is kind of the cornerstone of who I am. And I know you know this and I know that you subscribe to this too. So I think that the power of choice is really amazing. But I also know that it's very difficult to make choices if you don't feel strong enough and if you don't feel like you're worthy enough or deserve a, deserving enough and all that stuff. And it, and it triggers so many points for people around things like being selfish and things like um, shoulds and shouldn'ts and all of that type of stuff, especially when they've got children or they've got responsibilities for other people that they may be caring for, other dependents. It's really interesting, all the stuff that it brings up. So primarily, I guess within the space of me helping people to find their voice, I'm a mindset coach, and that's probably what I'm most well known for in the coaching world that I do. I also, I also coach on business, and I also coach on visibility and finding your voice, as well as, of course, the physical side of public speaking. But I guess that fear leads into fear of visibility, which means that they can't market themselves they can't speak about their business because they're too scared, which means that they haven't got enough income coming in, which means that they don't have the freedom that they need. They're in lack. So it kind of is, it's a bit of a domino effect, really. And I guess I've been self-employed now for 18 years. It's a long time to be self-employed. I think I'm on my sixth business venture. And you know, on paper, I guess I'm pretty successful. That doesn't mean that I feel successful all of the time. Because we go through stuff in life that we need to negotiate. And sometimes We need help to negotiate our way through certain periods in life. And so that's why, I mean, I've always been a teacher and I've always been a coach, right, for the whole of my career. So kind of moving more into coaching full time, well, not full time, because I've still got my, I've still got Inspire Me, obviously, but moving more into that space was a natural progression for me because it's one of my talents. I'm really good at taking people from one person from one place and taking them to the next there's definitely imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome comes up time and time again.
1: Do you um, want to talk about that Yeah. for so, people that may not kind of understand what it is?
0: So imposter syndrome is where you feel like a fraud. You just think somebody's going to find you out, right? So it's where you've probably, you've, you've taken a leap and you've had some confidence and you've moved into something and you're doing something that you know is challenging you in a good way, probably. And it might be that you know that you're that you're meant for more, a little plug there for my book, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But it's like if you know that you're meant for more, but you're scared of stepping into it, which I think is very common. It's a very common experience. I've experienced it time and time again, which is how come I can coach on it. And I know that you know, the most people I know, especially entrepreneurs, have that. Again, it comes back down to self-worth and fear of rejection. So it's kind of the same thing, but it's wrapped up in a different package. And when you're looking at things like imposter syndrome and fear, I think it's really important to be sophisticated about the words that we use and the language that people use around it, because if especially actually I do a lot of senior exec training and I do a lot of senior exec training with men. So one of the uh, methods, one of the tools I guess you could say that I use is learning to be present and learning to be vulnerable, learning to lose the ego. Well, try saying that to a room full of men who are all on six figures in suits, (laughs) who are all an archetype and talk about vulnerability and, you know, it's interesting what happens in the room, right? So I have to frame it and I might have to talk about being open or I might have to talk about have any of them got wives or girlfriends. And, of course, most of them have, or boyfriends. Most of them have got a partner, right? And I'll say to them, well, you needed to be vulnerable in order to fall in love, right? And then little pennies will drop and they'll be like, ah, oh, see what you mean, you know? Because really, <laughs> yeah. but men hear vulnerability and they think I am – my, my, my soft underbelly is vulnerable and I'm going to get attacked and I'm Especially going to die in the workplace. Right? In the workplace exactly. But and it's really, really challenging the work that I do in the mm. workplace. Thank you, Brené Brown for kind of opening up that world. But it's like, you talk about that with entrepreneurs and most of the best entrepreneurs that I know, and most of the most successful people that I know, regardless of what they earn and regardless of what they do are vulnerable. Mm. They are open to learning and they are open to innovation. They're open to creativity. They're open to connection. They're open to collaboration. They're open to being wrong. They're open to screwing up because they know they only learn when they screw up. The only time I ever learn is when I screw up. That's it. You know, hands down. So it's like when you've got, when you can get somebody into that space, you can move mountains with them because they, you can, they, they become possible, you know, when you can get people to, to drop the armor when they stop being armored. And the only reason we're armored is because we're scared and that's where the imposter syndrome comes up and all that stuff. So talked about fear. I've talked about imposter syndrome. Fear of being visible is a massive one. It's huge, especially for women because the the type, so the age group is my age group because you're usually your avatar, right? So in, in business, when you've got a personal brand and my age group are starting to become invisible. Why is that? Well, this is really interesting. And I bet there's going to be loads of comments about this and bring it on. Let's have a juicy (laughs) conversation around it. So women who are of a certain age, will have most likely had a couple of kids, maybe, right? Not necessarily, I know that this is a complete generalisation, right? So you don't have to have had a couple of kids to feel like this, but most likely will have had their children. So they won't be on that chapter. They may be on the chapter of child rearing, but they won't be on the chapter of babies and trying to have babies. Usually they've had, if they're going to have children, they will have had them. Sometimes, like me, for instance, I mean, I know that I'm a bit of an anomaly because I've got one child who's just left for university and one child who's just started full-time school, right? Which is a bit rare. But nonetheless, there will be new chapters happening in contribution because your function changes as a woman when you have a child. When you get pregnant, your function changes as a woman. And then it changes again when you have children. And then it changes again when those children don't need you anymore. So every single chapter, it changes and it's really emotional Like it's full on, like three weeks ago when I was in LA, I was doing a breathwork class in a darkened room in a meditation centre and I was crying my eyes out, snotty crying, like really loudly because it was the same day that Cole was moving out. And Albie had started school a week earlier. And I was just like, "My babies! Like I was just losing the plot. I was losing it. (laughs) But, you know, but it's interesting. I wondered where you (laughs) had (laughs) gone. But our function changes, right? It changes. And more than that, our function changes with our femininity and with our bodies, because our bodies are changing. And as our bodies changing, as our bodies change, you know, our skin changes, the elasticity changes on it. We're not as youthful as we were, all this type of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the women in their forties are badasses. And I would say that because I'm in my forties and I'm a badass, right? But also I think there's something about confidence and about, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? Can you bleep it out? So there's something about not giving it you weren't shaking your head. And I could see that Joe, it just makes the, the editing is saying harder. it yes. Okay, so I I'll just I'll do a beep myself. So there's something about not giving a beep, which makes women wonderful to be around. Well, it makes anybody wonderful to be around, right? But in particular women, because I think women come into their own when they when they enter their wise woman phase, which is actually what we're talking about. And without getting too woo about it and too spiritual about it, actually there's something about women when they have their wisdom and when they're not trying to be somebody that, that, that everybody else is and they're not trying to fit in anymore. And they're also not climbing a ladder trying to fit in anymore because we haven't got time and we're knackered. The We Make
1: Success Happen podcast is kindly brought to you by We Make Film Happen. We've filmed everyone from Richard Branson to George Clooney. We filmed bands on top of igloos through to filming adventurers going up active volcanoes. So if you want an amazing message through video, give me a shout. I'm on hello at we make film happen dot com. And if you mention this podcast when you contact me, I will give you a special cheeky discount when we work together. Hooray.
0: So it gets to that stage where you're just like, I haven't got time to make sure the house is tidy all the time. Or I haven't got time to make sure I'm a size 10 all the time or whatever it might be. Whatever, whatever it might, whatever your job is, you know. But the thing about that is, is that we also, I gotta be really careful how I say this, because actually what I know happens is that women who are in their 40s, if you look at all of the really successful, famous people, the most prominent women are the women in their 40s, the most prominent successful actresses, the highest paid actresses, the most prominent politicians, the most prominent business women are always in their 40s is when they rise, right? But similarly... Part of that is because in society, and there's going to be so much conversation around this, I'm quite scared about saying it, but I'm still going to go there. In society, that's when we start to come to go into the background a bit, unless we choose not to. But choosing not to takes a lot of courage. And that's why it's so scared to be visible, right? Because we're not spring chickens. We're not the people that, you know, we're not the people who caught the same attention. We caught attention for different reasons when we we're in our 40s and when we we're in our 50s. We caught attention because of who we are and what we're creating and what we bring to the party rather than because of what we look like. It's a massive piece. It's huge. And the biggest way to shame a woman is to shame them with their body image, whereas the biggest way to shame a man is to shame them through them failing and not being able to do something in the right way. So, again, quoting Brene Brown, she's done the research on this. There is data. This is data proven. So when women are scared about failing... They're not just scared about failing. They're really scared about what they look like and what the judgment from often other women is going to be about how they look on a Facebook live or on the television or on a podcast or, and there's often, you know, with the imposter syndrome, especially let's tie that back in. There's often a thought of who does she think she is? Who is she? It's the tall poppy syndrome stuff. You know, who does she think she is to stand up and say this stuff? And, you know, I've experienced this personally and it's fascinating Unless you've done some work on yourself and unless you understand that all of those comments are coming from those people because actually what I'm doing is scratching a wound in them. So they have to project out. If I hadn't done that work, I wouldn't be where I am and I wouldn't be as visible as I am. I certainly wouldn't be in all the press that I do. And, you know, I I just wouldn't be in that thought leadership space. I wouldn't be there because I wouldn't have the guts because I wouldn't be able to cope with all the criticism admittedly, it's interesting, you know, being a performer and starting my my career as a performer. One of the things I was told a long, long time ago, I was probably only about, I don't know, maybe 16 or something. And I was told that the entertainment industry was built on rejection. Really interesting, you know, when you think about limiting beliefs and you think about all that type of stuff that we say to ourselves. And I remember using that in my coaching practice for years. And I'd say to all of the young hopefuls, you know, You've got to learn to fail, guys. You've got to learn to accept it when somebody says no. And if they say no to you, it's probably not because you're not good enough. It's probably just because you're not you're not what they're looking for at the time. You know, Sometimes it was because they were not good enough and they needed to deal with that and level up, right? But when I think about that now, I hate that phrase. I think it's really damaging. I think it's actually quite toxic. I understand why somebody would... Would come up with that phrase to try and protect the person who's on the other end of it and say to them, "Look, people, you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. People are going to point fingers at you. They're going to they're going to shoot bullets at you. They're going to criticise you. Then they're going to be challenged by what you say. And some of them are going to be outright angered by what you say. I know you've experienced this. We've made good happen. I know you have. There's going to be haters. My new way of thinking, and this is really interesting because this comes from. One of my coaches that I work with now, Nick Pigeon, and she told me this about two and a half years ago, two years ago, something like this. She was the first person to introduce the concept that she loves haters. And I remember thinking, shut the beep up. Why would you love haters? See how well I'm doing? Barry girl, not swearing. (laughs) I think I'm doing really well. And now I'm coming around to the concept. If people unsubscribe from me, I'm like, good. I'm glad you're unsubscribing from me. Because otherwise I'd just be noise and you're just filling up and giving me false figures, right? But also with the haters, I'm like, good, because maybe, just maybe, I might put a thought into your head that you could choose differently. Or you might ask yourself, why do I feel so annoyed by this woman saying X, Y, Z? And hopefully, you know, it'll encourage people to maybe do the work, you know, or at least be open to doing the work. So that because this is the thing, right, if you talk about if I think about the ethos of something like we make good happen or we make success happen or the work that I do in my life, there's a global consciousness with it. And without getting too L.A. about it, what we know is if you've got lots of people who subscribe to the same thing, it can be equally as toxic or as positive as it needs to be. So when you've got the likes of an amazing autistic schoolgirl who sees that. The climate change isn't big enough, and she sits in front of a government building in protest and mm. sparks a global riot about doing something about climate crisis. That is global consciousness doing something for good, and look how controversial it is. Like even now, I can just imagine people going, wah, 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 "You know what I'm saying about it?" And great, good, because actually, what we need is to disrupt people.
1: She's an incredible. She's woman, amazing.
0: Isn't she? I love her. I think she's brilliant. I absolutely love her. I would love to meet her one day. I bet you'd love to interview her one day, Greta, she's,
1: if you're listening, Greta Thunberg. You're welcome we're, anytime. We're, we're inviting <laughs> you, but yeah, you know, but it's really
0: interesting, right? Because actually, sometimes it just takes one person to do something that is so significant that touches the hearts and minds of others that it changes everything about how we behave as a society.
1: The domino effect.
0: Oh, my goodness. And, like, I feel emotional talking about it because it's amazing and it's its really important to me. Like, I know that I change lives. I never used to be able to say that phrase. I used to say I used to facilitate life change mm. because I couldn't own my part in that. And, you know, through all the work that I've done, somebody said about three years ago this was, somebody Tore a shred of me. another coach, a fellow coach that I work with in LA every now and again, tore a, tore a strip off me in front of a room full of people and just said to me, if you don't own it, they can't. And I was like, man, penny drop moment. Yeah. Because my self-worth was always about giving. Don't forget, which is what we started the conversation with, which meant that if I was helping somebody, if I was the catalyst, if I was the handholder, if I was the facilitator, that was great because it meant that I could still play small. But actually, I'm not called to, to play small. I'm, I'm called to play bigger. And you only know when you're called to play bigger if you have the calling. If you don't have it, then don't be it, you know. But I know I'm called to be it, and that's what I'm doing right now. And I think within that, I have a responsibility. And my responsibility is to make sure that the change that I'm instigating is positive and it's far-reaching. That's where I'm coming from, and I know that some people – Won't see that and won't resonate with it and it's not their bag and that's fine. But I'm very congruent and that's what I'm doing. And I've got a feeling that's what you're doing too. So I think understanding that it's the butterfly effect, isn't it? A tiny little movement, a tiny little change can affect a massive amount for good. That's where it's at.
1: I like it. So these people that might be listening in the new year, 2020, you got the whole thing of January, you want a fresh start.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: What kind of things can you recommend to people to have a successful 2020? That are going to okay. last that isn't going to go to January 15 and yep. all those New Year's resolutions are completely forgotten about.
0: So it's interesting. I'm I'm a I love new chapters, you know. And as a coach, I've got containers of time obviously that I that I offer to people in order to get from A to B. And one of those containers of time is a 12-month container, right? Is, is, a, is a 12-month accelerator. And we do the same thing with Inspire Me as well. Like we'll offer 12-month engagement programs or 12-month training programs, right? Because, you know, it's a good idea to have that set time. One of the things that, there's so many things I can talk to you about. I haven't even, because you didn't really ask me the question beforehand, I couldn't plan my answer, but I'm just going to spit it all out. And then you can, um, you you can tell decide what off. you want. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> ah. uh, so, okay. So the first thing is, I've always always had goals and you know ambitions and dreams and aspirations. and I haven't always done news resolutions, but I've always visioned you know I'm, a, I'm an advocate of the law of attraction I use vision boards I use vision films I use Pinterest my vision I do all kinds right and I'm actually an advocate and a, a product of it working as are you okay so so we subscribe to that. I would say about five or six years ago, I went through some workplace trauma and I decided that there was no point in me setting goals anymore. I still do set goals, but I do them in a slightly different way, I think. So now what I do is I set intentions instead of goals. And there's a massive distinction. And this is something that I teach as well when I'm coaching women with with them getting to their next step or So what's
1: an intention then? So
0: there's a difference in intention. If you just say the word, so I'm just going to do it with you now, right? Say the word goal. So I'm going to set this goal. Just say that.
1: I'm going to set this goal.
0: And now say, I'm going to set this intention.
1: I'm going to set this intention. So there's
0: even a different inflection in your voice when you say it. Do you feel anything different when you say the two sentences? You might have to do it
1: again (laughs) to see whether you feel anything different. (laughs) The intention felt more relaxed. Yeah, it
0: is, right. So basically setting intention is a bit like Making a promise to yourself.
1: I had to think about that one.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's a bit like making a promise. So basically, when you set an intention, there's an emotional charge with it. When you set a goal, it's a very...
1: Is it like a masculine thing? Then? Yeah,
0: I was just going to go there and I didn't know whether I should, but I will because you've said it. So I've got permission to do <laughs> it. So basically, if you look at the masculine and the feminine, we are all aspects of masculine and feminine, whether they're male or female. This is gender Can you give a
1: quick breakdown of masculine and feminine yes. who people may not understand?
0: So, And some people, again, might not like this, but I do a lot of work on this, yeah. a huge amount of work on it. So masculine charges, right? And some people will think this is absolute BS, but I know mm. it's true. So I'm going to bang the table and please make don't a noise. bang the table i know i will bang the table <laughs> anymore. Anyway, i'm sorry right so <laughs> masculine charges will be things like getting stuff done getting stuff done to the deadline making it happen push hustle money crushing the goal nailing the sale all of that type of stuff is masculine right getting shid done getting it done right making it happen all that stuff
1: Remember our brand?
0: I know. Well, it's, you're masculine. It's your brand. It's fine. You can do it. You're masculine. I wouldn't have that in my brand because I'm feminine, right? So for me, it's all about allowing. So you allow it to happen. Hmm. So instead of making it, I couldn't, I couldn't make it. I'd have to allow a film happening because I've got the same ring as it, you know, it doesn't work, right? But anyway, so it's all about allowing. And partly because my business is now based on alignment. Um, and it never used to be. So I used to be very much in my masculine and I am very much in my masculine in, in certain times. So if I'm in a sales meeting, I'm in my masculine. If I am in um, a strategy session with my businesses that I'm talking about money and I'm talking about targets and all that type of stuff, I'm in my masculine. If I am project managing, I'm probably in my masculine, right? But if I'm in building or I'm in designing or I'm in I was going to say a mode of intention then, because that's exactly what we're talking about. Then I'm in my feminine, because it's about, sometimes I have to get out of my own way in order for those things to come to me. So it's about allowing them. It's about a permission piece. Often I have to give myself permission to receive. Receiving is inherently feminine. So if you look at the masculine and the feminine, the masculine's role, this is where it's going to get really tetchy with you and I, and I'm just going to go there, right? So from the start of time, (laughs) you're looking at me,
1: smirking at me. (laughs) What is she going to say? (laughs) Okay, so
0: from the start of time, if you look at nature and you look at biology, the masculine's job is to serve the feminine. And the feminine's job is to be receptive in order for the masculine to be able to serve them, right? So if you just look at, we'll we'll look at pollination rather than looking at the obvious one, which is where everybody's head is going. I'll just name it. That's fine. You go there. I'm going to talk about flowers, right? (laughs) No idea
1: what you're on about.
0: (laughs) So... In order for the feminine to be fertilized, if you like, it's got to be able to receive from the masculine, right? I'm going to fast forward that now and talk about business because it's one of my specialities. So an entrepreneur, the definition of entrepreneur is somebody who makes money out of an idea that makes money has to be in there. Otherwise you're not an entrepreneur, you're a hobbyist, right? So you come up with an idea, inherently coming up with an idea is feminine because it's creative, because we are creative, the definition of it. We make other human beings or we make other animals or whatever it is we're making in the feminine, right? Let's say I come up with an idea and let's say the idea is full of butterflies and glitter and unicorns and rainbows, right? Let's just say it's one of those ideas, which is like a save the world idea.
1: Like the one you had last week.
0: <laughs> but let's <laughs> say it's one of those, uh, right? Uh, if I don't have the masculine skill set and the masculine elements to make that happen, and to monetize it,
1: hmm.
0: and to project manage it, and to execute it—you know—all of these words—they're very hard words, aren't they? The same as a resolution and a goal. It's a hard word. It's like a resolution—is you do it or you don't, right? Just like Yoda, there's no try, right? That's a resolution. A new is resolution. I am resolute to making this happen. And there's an element of cutting off. It's like a decision. Like I don't—I don't like the word decisions, hmm. unless it's in very certain certain contexts. Now I use the word choice these days. Hmm. And again, that, I guess that's, I don't know whether that would be feminine or not, but it's softer. I guess, you know, some people will say it was feminine, it's softer, right? But you can't have one without the other. That's the point. That's the point. So the thing is when it comes to setting goals, okay. And you think about New Year's resolutions or New Year's goals. The thing about that, the reason why they fail and the reason why say something like 87% of them fail by the 15th of the month or whatever it is, is because we are not giving ourselves any space to lean into that intention and make it happen or create it or allow it to happen or whichever phrase you want to use, which, you know, which floats your boat, which means that we're setting ourselves up for failure straight away. And it's, it's an interesting concept. And since I started changing how I look at it, which was probably about three years ago, so much in my life has changed because I've changed my approach. So if I set an intention, I might set an intention that in quarter one, I am open to creativity as I launch a new pivot and inspire me. Now, that sounds very flowery and it sounds very soft, right? But actually, what that means is I'm creating something new. And it means I'm open to it and I'm going to receive what comes and I'm going to play with it and I'm going to explore it. And I, you can bet your bottom dollar it'll happen quicker than if I'd set a goal for X to happen by X. Always does. So I think there's some stats and, I, and I'm... Now, I might get these wrong, so somebody can correct me on comments if I do get it wrong, right? But I think the stats are something like, if you set an intention, there's a Forbes article on this because I use it in my coaching. If you set an intention, you're something like 84% more likely to achieve the intention and to to realise the intention than if you set a goal. And apparently, and you can literally almost turn it upside down, something like you're 84% less likely to achieve a goal when you set it in that way, when you set a New Year's resolution but you're 87% more likely to achieve it. something like that. So, you know, I don't know the exact figures, but I know that it's, it's a vast difference. So now I set intentions. So my first, my number one would be to set intentions rather than resolutions. So how
1: many intentions should people set? And this isn't just a January thing, isn't it? I think people can sort of set intentions throughout the year, can't they?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, because we're talking about intentions. Actually, what I really want to talk about is what people want. I'd rather get down, down to desire.
1: Okay, let's talk about desire then. You know, and desire is quite a <laughs> triggering
0: word, isn't it? Because people don't like what you use the word desire because it makes them think about sex. But if we talk about desire, actually what we're talking about is what your heart desires. And work backwards. You yeah, and you yeah, and okay. you're reverse engineer, of course. If I hadn't thought about what I really wanted to create in the world, if I hadn't got clear with my why, thank you, Simon Sinek, you know, if I hadn't done my start with why stuff, and I hadn't thought, right, what actually is it? That I'm creating in the world, and I got clear on it, then I couldn't reverse engineer it. So you've got to start with why. So if you if you want to create something, or if you want to achieve something, why do you want to do it? Do you want to do it because you want a new kitchen? Do you want to do it because you want to go to the Caribbean? Do you want to do it because you want to change something? Do you want to do it because your back is against the wall and you cannot do what you're doing anymore? You know, the times in my life when I've made drastic changes is because I've had line in the sand moments where it's like, I can't, I'm, I've can't. i done it. I'm through. I've had enough. I've, it's either got to change or it's got to go. And I'm like super glue. So I change everything instead of go usually, which is like, you know, and I and I get criticism for that too. And I don't care. It's fine. So it's like <laughs> I, I'm past care and I used to really worry about it. And now I'm just like, no, nope, just accept it. That's what you do. That's fine. <laughs> if you get clear on what you want, then you can do The reverse engine, and this is quite masculine. It's very, very, you know, paint by numbers. You can just go, what do I need to do to achieve that? And you can literally go back and you do, you know, you do the kind of the boulder, the rocks, the stones and the gravel. Have you ever heard of that one? Yeah. I like
1: that. So say
0: say the the boulder is what you want. Then you break it down to rocks. Then you break it down to gravel. Then you break it down into, into, uh, it's the other way around. You know what I'm talking about, Mm. right? I've got it all wrong. But anyway, so say your boulder is, I want to, I want to make a six-figure business, let's say, in 12 months.
1: Before we get to that, how can people, is there a simple exercise that people can use to find out what they actually desire? Subscribe, rate and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. It means a lot. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Callanan, and I'll see you on the next episode.